The Mysterious Bluffs, Part 6. Michael Midas here. I'm in the New Moon Church, Monday night in the Education Center. The room is packed for a charity spelling bee to fund the funeral of the departed church organist. The first word of the night has just been announced. Beazzlebub. Dean Williams, who has a displeasure of spelling the first word, is standing on the stage, redder than a stop sign, and his arms are crossed tightly. You're not going to try, Boris Yaktuvovich says. Dean Williams shrugs his shoulders. Well, here goes nothing. B-E-L-Z-A. I'm sorry, Boris says, but this is bad spelling. I give next word. I'd like it to be a decent word, please, Dean Williams says. If you don't like words, we bring next person. Dean Williams looks down at his shoes, then asks for the next word. The young brunette woman standing stateside picks up a cue card from the stack in her hand and announces the next word is... Who picked these words? Dean Williams asks. The brunette woman points a finger at Boris. Do you know what they mean? Dean asks. Yes, I find words in dictionary. Enough about the words. Where did the church find you? Dean Williams asks. The brunette woman says that Boris is the church janitor. Dean gets a little shaky, then takes a deep breath and smiles. I guess anyone can host a spelling bee, he says. You don't like janitors, Boris says. No, I just want a word that's fair. How about words that you know? Duck, you know, with feathers. Dean spells the word in a cinch, then breezes through the following nine words, which include sink, mop, and Lysol. Afterwards, the other three contestants spell all their words correctly. The first round ends in a four-way tie. Swan, Ebba, and I shuffle and twitch with the rest of the audience. Ebba mentions that it's hard to guess how long the spelling bee will go on for. She pours a second glass of wine under the table. She says she wishes the organist wouldn't have died on such short notice, so Boris wouldn't have to wing it. A strange-looking man approaches Boris on stage, whispers something in his ear, then leaves. 
Boris announces that because of the four-way tie, the contestants will repeat the first round and only the words on the cue cards will be used. All four of the contestants pout with dismay. Thank God the night won't end in a four-way tie, I say to Swen and Ebba. Swen says that Boris's choice of words are awfully suspicious, so the Russians must have hacked the spelling bee. What do you mean, Russians? I ask Swen. Swen says there must be a reason Boris is picking such lousy words. Perhaps the New Moon Church has political connections, or the latest Russian spy agency, the Foreign Intelligence Service, is experimenting with public mind control. Boris sounds like a drunken vampire, I say. He has the lousiest Russian accent I've ever heard, and I wouldn't be surprised if he isn't the janitor, and maybe not a spy either, but a narcissist using the spelling bee for attention. Or he plans to unnerve the audience, then sell memberships to a massage club. Swen smirks with frustration and says a massage club will be owned by Russians. He's a fake Russian, I say, and I wouldn't be surprised about anything that happens in this church. It's plagued with some strange events, namely the choir members that have gone missing. And the other day I followed a man in here after he stole my friend's watch. It was just before the organist died. Ebba asks why I never disclosed this to them before they joined me for the spelling bee. I would have mentioned it, but I forgot to after seeing you guys... Uh... You forgot because we were connecting with nature? Swen asks. I guess connecting with nature is the free-spirited way of saying they were nude while we were eating herring and crisp bread. So the first round starts all over. This time, Maria Koloski, the tiny and shrill-voiced kindergarten teacher, is called first to the microphone. She breezes through the challenge, spelling words like necrophiliac and amputation. Donnie Harris, the beer-gutted and balding owner of Harris Plumbing Supplies, is next. And he can only spell the first two words, which are defilement and larceny. Jane Donaldson and Dean Williams barely survive the round, but their fate is marked as Maria Koloski, the favorite, kicks into high gear and defeats them one round after the next. She breezes through another few rounds on her own to keep the pledge money rolling in, then finally stops because it's nearing 11 o'clock and she has to teach kindergarten in the morning. She's declared the winner of the evening and awarded a $100 gift certificate for an online lamp retailer. Then other goodies are raffled off to the audience members. Bill, the blind ex-fireman, wins a $50 coupon from a pool and hot tub supply store, which he accepts with a gracious smile, though he lives in an apartment. After Boris thanks everyone for coming, the audience either lines up to pay their pledges or shuffles out of the education center in a slightly agitated manner. I bring Swen and Ebba to Constable Randy and Bill, who are standing near the entrance door. Everyone shakes hands and shares a round of smiles. While Bill is shaking Ebba's hand, he compliments her on the perfume she's wearing. She thanks him, then says she isn't wearing any. Bill frowns a little, then moves on to Swen. 
I make a mental note to tell Bill that his inaccuracy about Eva's perfume is good reason to believe that he's probably mistaken about the kind of aftershave the Rolex thief was wearing. But I'll save this conversation for when we're alone. After the introduction, I have another question for Bill. Why did he look so pleased to win a coupon from a pool and hot tub store? He says that he knows a couple in the area with the pool, and they've always been a big help to him, so he'll be glad to pass on the coupon to them. At that moment, Donnie Harris slowly drags himself by our group on his way to the door. His head is down, and his face is a bit distraught. Constable Randy pats him on the back and says he did a great job. I hope this audience doesn't think I do plumbing the way I spell, Donnie moans. Constable Randy says the audience was undoubtedly impressed with his courage to participate, many of them having been asked to get on stage as well, but probably declining out of fear. The plumber moans and says he wishes he was wise like them, and just came to watch. After spelling only two of the official words correctly, he wouldn't dare advertise his business over the mic, which he'd planned to do. Bill, the blind ex-fireman, chuckles nervously, then says he wishes his mistakes were as innocent as the plumber's because they wouldn't have cost him his eyesight. It's an uncomfortable moment while the rest of us search for a well-meaning response. Constable Randy says what happened to Bill is a misfortune, but blaming the mistake itself is like saying it has a set of fangs to bite with. A mistake can't really cause itself. I notice again that Constable Randy is wearing a brown leather bomber jacket similar to the one I used to wear. I remember that I donated mine to a clothing drive just after I'd moved into my house. I look closer and recognize a scuff mark on the left arm, which is where my ex-wife accidentally nicked mine with an ice skate. I ask Constable Randy where he got his jacket, and he looks at me strangely, as though the question is off topic. After a moment of silence, he asks Ebba where her and Swen are originally from. They both say Sweden. Constable Randy smiles acceptingly, then jokes they probably know a lot about furniture. We own a furniture store, Swen says. Sure, and I'm a bank robber, the constable jokes. No, really, we do. It's only a 45-minute drive from here, Swen says. But you'll go back to Sweden, the constable says. Oh, sorry, Swen gasps. We're immigrants here. We love this country. Constable, I add, they are my neighbors. They're good people. Let me finish what I was going to say, the constable answers. But you'll go back to Sweden every once in a while to see all the latest designs. You Swedes know furniture. We do care about furniture, Swen says, but it's not all us Swedes do. That's right. You guys won the international dog sledding competition in 1978, the constable says. <laughs> We've won it since then, Swen rebuts. At that moment, Maria Koloski enters our circle and positions herself next to Constable Randy. 
She runs her fingers through her curly dark hair, then pats him on the shoulder. The spindly woman says they've met before when he pulled her over for speeding. That's right, last winter, the constable says. You were in a rush to get to this church, so I let you go. Maria Koloski smiles and thanks him, then asks if he's single. Uh, we should talk about that another time. I'll give you my phone number, the constable says. Maria gets out her cell phone and he recites his number to her. She thanks him and heads to the door. I'm sure it'll be a short phone call. About the spelling bee, I suppose, the constable says to everyone. I'm about to announce that my night is over because I have an antique store to run in the morning. But Dean Williams, the manager of Greenies Golf Club, barges into our group. I'm sure this contest is for a good cause, but it gives me the creeps, he says. Who's that Russian guy anyway? He's not Russian, I answer. I think he's putting us on. There's something fishy about his accent. You sound really serious, Michael, Constable Randy says. He nudges my shoulder with his hand. Too serious for a spelling bee. It sounds like you're threatening me, Constable, I say. No, that's not what I mean, the Constable chides. And this conversation is getting a little out of hand. So let's talk about nicer things, like the wonderful casket our favorite organist will have for his funeral. Let me get this straight. He's your favorite organist? You sound like a member of the New Moon Church. Are you? The constable pauses pensively. There's a lot of good people in this church. So let's not say who's a member and who isn't. He looks over at Gail, the woman with the ghoulish appearance who took my pledge. She's still busy collecting donations, but the lineup at her table is almost done. You'll have to excuse me, the constable says. I have a friend to speak with. He strolls off towards Gail. I ask Swen and Ebba if they're ready for the walk back home. They both say yes. But first, we all drop by Gail's table to pay our pledges. I must note that Constable Randy, who is standing beside Gail with his arms tightly folded, says nothing during the interaction and only gives a slight nod when we all say goodnight for the evening. Swen, Ebba and I make our way to outside the front entrance of the church. A few small groups of audience members are standing around the walkway, chatting away the end of the night. We stop to get accustomed to the chilly air. Ebba has a quirky smile on her face. You know, it would have been more adult-like to have a charity casino instead of a spelling bee, she says. That's what I told Constable Randy when he invited me to this event, I say. You know him that well? Ebba asks. He seems like one of those cops that the longer you talk to him, the better chance you have of getting a ticket. I don't really know him, I say. Like I told you already, I happened to be nearly the last person to see the organist before he died. I had to give a statement to the constable, and that's how he got my phone number. Abba blushes and chuckles with a thrill of speculation. 
So you might have something to do with his death, she says. They say a good place to find a murderer is at the victim's funeral. I give her a rancid frown. Did you listen to Boris on stage while he was talking about the organist? He definitely wasn't knocked off. I've been cleared of all involvement in his death. Ebba smiles skeptically, refusing to subdue the notion her life is so interesting that she is in the company of a murderer. Swen soothingly pats Ebba on the shoulder. Come on, dear, let's go home and chat about having a baby. Ebba says that Swen only talks about babies when he hears about something sinister. Ebba, I say, you don't have to get pregnant because you think I killed the organist. And this sinister kind of talk is too far for a charity spelling bee. Swen gives me a little sneer. Too far, he says, after the first word of the night was Beazelbub? It's the wrong word to say, a word conjuring a strange ambience that belongs in an abandoned schoolyard. The stars in the sky deadened to a pale gray, the people around us quiet to a whisper. I feel a large, dark presence behind my back, looming towards me. I glance over my shoulder and see a small group of people chatting, though their tongues are light with wariness. I look back at Swen and Ebba. They are nose to nose, lost in a row about the right time to have a baby. A spirit is restless in their cradle, agitating them to give it life. And the pressure to do so is spread over their faces like horseradish on a pair of onions. The presence is still surrounding me, an unnerving abyss that is gripping my senses. It pretends to be my intuition, giving me a bleak sensation that I can never escape the New Moon Church in one piece without becoming a member. I should return inside the building, ask when the next sermon is, and if I can attend it. The presence tries to twist my shoulder so that I turn around and look again at the crowd behind me. I resist for a shaky moment, then do so anyways out of interest. What could I possibly have missed? It's him! The man who stole Bill's Rolexes in the small crowd. Well, it's him without a mustache. I'm sure it's him, because I'd never forget his towering build and long blonde hair. In fact, I'm sure he's wearing the gray suit I saw him in at Becky's coffee shop. He recognizes my face, and a few tears run from his eyes. Then he returns to speaking with a woman who is equally as tall and blonde. She gets a tissue from her purse and hands it to him. He wipes his tears, then comes over to me. Swen and Ebba don't notice his arrival as they remain deep in discussion. Excuse me, the man says. I know you from somewhere. <laughs> you stole my friend's Rolex, I say. Is it why you shaved your mustache so nobody would notice you? Well, first of all, I didn't steal anyone's Rolex, the man says. And secondly, I shaved my mustache out of respect for the organist. I focus deeper on the man's face, looking over his features from forehead to skin. There is no doubt he's the culprit, but at the moment, I'd rather try to grasp the kind of respect that requires shaving a mustache. So... 
You feel like a better man because you shaved it when the organist died, I ask? That's kind of a strange question, he says. Bewildered, I chuckle a little. Shaving your mustache because of a death is a strange custom, I say. He sighs in frustration. The organist grew a mustache to protest clear-cutting in the Boreal Forest of Canada. He said he'd wear it to the grave. It was a good cause, so I joined in. So you've only decided to wear it to his grave, I say, because the trees are still coming down faster than card houses in a hurricane. I shaved the mustache out of respect, he says. I couldn't think of a better way to mark the end of an era. Besides, the thing collects pollen, and some days I was sneezing like a, a termite in a vacuum bag. At that moment, Constable Randy, Bill the Blind Ex-Fireman, and a seeing-eye dog Ram appear from the front door. My dark feeling disappears, so seeing them must be a good sign. I wave at them, and surprisingly, they rush towards me. This is the culprit who stole your Rolex, Bill, I announce. Officer Randy blushes with annoyance, then grabs my shoulder. Do you know who you're talking about, cowboy? This man is the spiritual leader of the New Moon Church. Bill, the blind ex-fireman, leans over to the man and has a drawn-out whiff. I don't recognize his aftershave, Bill says. He never stole my watch. End of episode 6 Hey there, mystery buffs. Stay tuned for episode 7. Michael Midas makes a devilish discovery when he investigates why the leather jacket he donated to a clothing drive wound up in the hands of Constable Randy.